You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, This is Brecky. The time is 7am. I am Genevieve and I'm joined here with Lauren. Good yes, morning, you Lauren. are. Good morning. How Genevieve's on the panel this morning. Yes. For listeners, Genevieve is driving this show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, terrifying, but yeah, yeah, hopefully we have a smooth show. Yeah. Touch wood, but so far, so good. So far, so good, for <laughs> sure. Um, now, weather. Mm. It's not too cold outside. It's not too That's cold. a very inaccurate description, but it's pretty mild. <laughs> That's the uh, sun's coming up, which is always good. <laughs> um, it's going to be a top of 17 today, low of 12, oh. partly cloudy, classic Melbourne. Nothing's changed. Yeah, I feel like I maybe misrepresented then. It's actually not very warm, guys. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and we've got quite a full show coming up today. We do. Um, and really varied. It's going to be a good one. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, you have a live interview. Who are you speaking to? I do. I have a live interview. I'm speaking to Bobby Trower, who is um, a manager of advocacy at the YWCA. Um, and they're on the show to talk to us about, obviously, a lot of conversation that's circulating around sexual violence at the mm. moment um, in light of uh, all of the stuff going on in Parliament, mm. the petition. Um, so, obviously, a lot to talk about, but... Um, we're just going to break it down, I guess. Nice. Um, have yeah. a chat in terms of what that means for women and gender non-conforming people. So, yeah, really looking forward to that oh one. I was just thinking, sorry, I had a chat with a colleague about that yesterday, but we can park that. No. <laughs> we don't have to park it. No, okay. well, we can talk about it in news. Um, but I will just touch on what else we have on the program in case listeners are keen. Um for this particular interview, it's, I think it might be useful to a number of listeners, but I've um, stolen Iris's interview from Queering the Air last week. Um, she spoke with a, woman, a person named Tilly about um, a queer mutual aid group out in the western suburbs. And so they're delivering home-cooked meals to um, cutie pock people or other queer and trans people out in the West um, who need a bit of love and support, uh, particularly chronically ill and disabled people. So it's a really great initiative. Um, and if you are either able to volunteer or you live out that way, tune in because um, mm. it's awesome. And then Iris gets really into the mutual aid kind of stuff and she's awesome at that, so it's really cool. Yeah. Um, and George sent us an interview with a um, Tamil academic and activist who um, began a hunger strike a couple of days ago um, yeah, to that, demand justice for the Tamil genocide. That looks great, actually. I haven't mm. listened to it myself, so I'm really keen to listen to that one. And yeah. you've also incorporated... 
uh, a bit of audio as well. Oh yeah, I'm just still banging the coercive control drum. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> the, on, the ongoing debate continues, and um, ABC Radio National just did a short piece on um, a bit of a both sides look at the debate to criminalise coercive control, and I thought I'd include that just because we've covered it so much in the program. Yeah. Um, good to hear updates, um, and Absolutely. surprisingly. ABC is not super pro cop in this piece, yeah. <laughs> which is always really nice. It's a nice surprise. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, well, we'll do some news headlines yes. just after this announcement. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support, and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence relationships, suicide prevention, and sexual assault. For information, support, and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Uh, let's move on to some news headlines. I might start off with you, Lauren. Oh, you want to? Yeah, <laughs> you go first. <laughs> well, I think we were just having a chat um, before the program started. Just kind of, I mean, a massive trigger warning, I guess. But if you're a survivor at the moment, um, you know the the whole world really needs a trigger warning. Um, sexual harassment and sexual violence is everywhere um and I'm interested in your thoughts Jen Mm. I'm finding the coverage well I'm finding it a lot but I'm also finding it um kind of a bit glib in Mm. some some, uh, yeah people are sort of um talking about all of the stuff in parliament so now um for reference so there's four allegations of sexual harassment and or sexual assault against this anonymous former Liberal staffer who um, who's alleged to have sexually assaulted Brittany Higgins, um, who was the first complainant to come forward. Um, and so because that's probably going to be the subject of police investigation, we'll leave it there. But yeah. but those are the, that's sort of the allegations against that person. And then um, there's now also been some anonymous letters sent. So one alleges that a current serving um, cabinet minister – um, sexually assaulted somebody in, I think, 1988, like a really long time yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, um, and that that complainant has since completed suicide, unfortunately. Yeah. And then another letter alleging um, a senior ALP, I believe MP, but somebody in, yeah. in Parliament anyway, um, well, did a similar thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I guess you're yeah. finding the coverage um, a little bit... <sighs> not considerate of or... it's so I and please you know buddy and tell me what you think um I just feel like 
sexual violence is so um, it's so triggering for so many people, and it's so um, it's so intensely personal and traumatic. But it's almost being used in a gotcha way, yes, to meet political ends. And I, uh, some of the coverage is is really. Um, trauma-informed and very considerate and also manages to highlight the political issues with, you know, alleged cover-ups or alleged mm-hmm. um, don't ask, don't tell and, and those sorts of things and, and really serious workplace health and safety issues yeah. manages to, to cover all of those things in a way that's not um, sort of at the expense of the people making allegations about sexual violence. But yeah. so much of it is, you know, there's hashtags of um, – just using like, just, just, um, I don't know. I, I'm just finding it really quite confronting. To be yes. Honest. No, I, I absolutely agree. This is not very well explained. I think it's, no, no, it's, per, I think it's, per, I mean, th- that kind of res- represents the whole thing is, mm. um, to try to explain or to try to comprehend what's going on is actually seems quite unfathomable, unfathomable, excuse mm. me. <laughs> no, it's very early and that's a long word. Um, but it's kind of really extremely disappointing how power is warped into mm. every facet of um, this, I guess, these allegations in terms of even how the media mm. is using them, uh, how the media is broadcasting them, obviously how MPs are reacting, mm. uh, you know, the culture of denialism, um, which, I mean it's disappointing to see on any level, but on a parliamentary level, it's Mm. particularly disappointing. And I think that's been the predominant thing of, you know, obviously if me too taught us anything, it was uh, the people that get heard the most with sexual allegations are the people within powerful positions, socioeconomic Mm. race. um, And obviously this is a high profile case and it's, extremely disappointing that even this being a high profile case is being conducted in a way that is incredibly inconsiderate of the survivors. Absolutely. Um, and incredibly inconsiderate of the people that have also experienced sexual violence. Um, and there's been no kind of extensive discourse about how you manage that. I think. No, absolutely not. And, and no, um, I was, as I was saying, I was chatting to a workmate yesterday and, um, they were sort of saying, well, everyone just needs to start speaking up every single time it happens. And I just sort of wondered if, like, if people would even believe the the level and the rate at which this happens. And I, you know, my yeah. heart goes out to Brittany Higgins and, and to all of those people who've now, they're at the center of this, you know, they can't turn on the TV or anything without hearing about themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that also every single workplace has numerous mm-hmm. of these people. And I just, anyway. Yeah, no, no, this is this is mm. a, actually a great conversation starter because um, I'm interviewing Bobby. Bobby wrote an article about how, I guess, the one in five women mm. um, have been sexually, have experienced sexual violence is an incredible underestimation mm. of what actually would happen in terms of the silence that surrounds um, this sort of stuff still. Mm. So yeah, this is a nice little, um, initial conversation. Yeah. That. yeah. Well, that'll be a great interview. I'm looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Um, in other news, I 
just wanted to quickly mention, um, I thought this really stuck out in the news for some reason. I mean, considering, I guess, all the hype around Biden. Um, but uh, Biden has warned Iran to be careful after US strike. This, can't, this news came last week uh, where President Joe Biden, and I'm sorry, I'm getting these headlines from Al Jazeera. President Joe Biden said that Iran cannot act with impunity and warned Iran to be careful after a U.S. airstrike on Iranian-backed militia site in Syria. Asked by reporters traveling with him in Texas what message he was trying to send Iran with the airstrike, Biden said, you can't act with impunity. And then Biden paused and said, be careful. It's Mm. very... like almost movie like that <laughs> comment. Uh, the US president's remarks come as he as he was reviewing a uniformed medical team at a public vaccination site um, in Houston um, and uh, a little update on Iran's I guess reaction to that. Iran rules out talks with US EU to discuss nuclear deal revival. So mm. it's um I guess and yeah. Wow. Who would have thought that a US president would (laughs) (laughs) follow in the footsteps of, um, while we're on international news, I might jump in with just a quick headline about Myanmar. Yes. Um, yes. so I'm sure listeners are aware and, um, if you've been following the story with Jen, um, but Aung San Suu Kyi was, um, ousted in a coup a couple of weeks ago by the military. Um, and on Sunday, this Sunday just gone, um, UN Human Rights Office have reported that at least 18 people were killed and several were injured after the Myanmar police opened fire on protesters. Um, there's been demonstrations daily um, against the coup and this is considered to have been the bloodiest day in weeks of those demonstrations. Um, and more generally, Myanmar is um, described as being in chaos. There is a number of internet blackouts um, and some quite heavy police presence all over the nation um and Aung San Suu Kyi is expected to appear in court um I think it's it's this morning their time um she's been charged uh with violating natural disaster management laws or sort of uh, yeah very um yeah yeah I might leave the the spicy commentary but um so that's where Myanmar is at very very dangerous times yeah, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. And just quickly in the last minute um, before we uh, go to a track, um, Lauren, you talk a lot about, um, I guess, the crackdown on youth crime. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry at all. Um, no, I think it's great. So you'll probably have more comment than I will. But um, uh, Queensland, Queensland's crackdown on youth crime is obviously um, in regards to uh, two car crashes that happened in January, um, mm. and uh, after a lot of public outcry, fueled by a lot of media coverage, mm. painting uh, youth as criminals, um, the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palajek, uh reacted uh, by imposing, um, pretty much putting a lot more uh, police on the ground there, um, uh, cracking down on uh, repeat offenders. Um, and increasing, uh, making it harder to pass bail, um, stuff like that. I think mm. there's been a, well, I'm, I mean, I'm sure we've mentioned this before, but the reason why I'm talking about it now is, um, the, the police unions, I think in Queensland are extremely powerful, mm. uh, something that I didn't quite 
realize. Mm. So they have a lot of um, power and, I guess, ability to influence uh, the state government there. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's pretty. It's also very racially driven. Um, yeah. Queensland is uh, one of the states with the the worst sort of disparity between um, or the worst rates of over-incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, and that extends particularly to their young people. It's not quite as bad as the Northern Territory, but it's close. Um, yeah. And the the most extreme examples of police violence that come out of Queensland is um, usually in relation to black kids. And, yeah. um, and so um, prison abolitionists and, and youth crime, or young people advocates have made it very clear that this um, is considered to be a really racist policing yeah. move, um, which is, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So we might move on to a song. Yeah. I'm going to play the new song from uh, Melbourne-based producer and MC Pookie. Um, she is absolutely incredible. If you've never listened to them before, I would 100% recommend. This is her second single. Um I'm pretty sure she's from the West Side. Uh, she does um, a blend of hip hop and R&B, um, and I'm absolutely loving this new song. It's called Unstoppable. But I'm busy snatching edges You know I'm self-made, baby Ain't no reason to hate, baby Self-made, ladies, is the only way Maybe I could give you some tips Some of my source you can sip But please make sure you don't slip I'm known to just all about me and my bugs Me and my bugs And if you look closely, your bitch don't got no fucks Me and my bucks, honey, you was sitting duck So when I let it rain, you should try to maintain these lyrical consequences brought up upon you by you and they burn but the faith that you earn I think somebody got ahead of they self I think somebody really like catching them ass they tryna hit a nigga with some obstacles they don't know what to hot make you wear like popsicles what's wrong big dog you was popping all that good shit I made it right I'm the business don't try to stop me when I pull up with the demons don't try to stop me when you no longer a free man don't try to stop me when I'm coming at your neck. Don't try to stop me when I'm happy and you're dreaming. Don't try to stop me when I pull up with the demons. Don't try to stop me when you're no longer a freeman. Don't try to stop me when I'm coming at your neck. But I'm busy snatching 
incredible song a new song by Pookie called Unstoppable I just love the guitar that plays in the back of that song it's just absolutely so good um all right we're gonna go to a um interview um that was done sorry a conversation that was done with Iris um on a 3CR program called Queering the Air um and Iris talks to Tilly about the queer mutual aid group, uh, the Food Angels, um, which, uh, yeah, I haven't heard. So I'm extremely excited. Sorry, Jen's, uh, <laughs> Jen's vamping because <laughs> I was having some trouble loading it up. But um, this is a great interview. Enjoy. Okay. I'm joined by Tilly, a member of the Queer Mutual Aid Project, the Food Angels, and content warning for some mentions of Death, Bridget Flack, and Chloe Slarks for this interview. Thanks so much for joining me on Queering the Air, Tilly. Hi, Iris. Thanks so much for having me. Um, first, would you like to tell listeners a bit more about yourself? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm Tilly. I use they or she pronouns. I'm a queer person living in... Nam in so-called Melbourne. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, so in terms of the projects of Food Angels, first, could you talk a bit a bit about how you understand mutual aid? Yeah, sure. Um, so I kind of, I think a lot of people sort of came across mutual aid as a concept a lot more during the COVID lockdowns here um, because it really started to gain a lot of traction as a term that was being thrown around. Um, and I did more research into it and I really found that it was like a lot, it resonated a lot more with me in terms of doing community work rather than charity because um, focused around the concept of it being solidarity, not charity and it's peer-based work and it's not um, a top-down um, sort of charitable function. It's like community peer support and it's community care and it's mutually beneficial aid. Yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, I know it's been a heavy time in, towards the end of last year and recent months in many queer and trans circles and I guess like only going into mentions rather than details of these heavy times but could you talk about how the Food Angels came about? Yeah sure Um, so we've been around since early December which obviously everyone in the queer community knows all too well how difficult that time was Um, coming out of lockdown obviously I feel like there was a bit of a mental health crisis in our community so yeah we did have some community members pass away in really awful circumstances so um yeah just thought whenever i'm having a rough time i always appreciate or would love to have home cooked meals from people in my community and it really shows yeah that you care about someone so yeah just started offering meals to friends who i knew were grieving and trans friends and people that were non-binary as well who i knew were particularly um having a rough time and mourning these losses during that time. Um, and, yeah, my friend Alex Cuff started promoting it on her Instagram and it sort of grew from there from just offering meals to friends to offering meals to the wider community. Anyone that's sort of in crisis or having a difficult time could contact us and um, have home-cooked meals delivered to them by 
members of the community and feel connected to community and cared for. And I've actually, yeah, met a lot of um, really beautiful people through doing this. And I feel um, more connected to community myself. And um, yeah, it's been a really special thing so far. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Could you talk more about how it's been received? Yeah, sure. Um, Actually, last week we just had um, our first, full volunteer meeting so we've been sort of trying to organize things from the ad hoc system we had before um yeah and we had a bunch of new volunteers come and we made our instagram account and we've got our fundraiser up and we've had an overwhelmingly like the response has been incredible like we thought we'd start up a fundraiser because a few people early on were offering to send money um, and contribute funds if they couldn't help out with like cooking or driving or anything else Um, So we put up a fundraiser and we've had to keep upping the goal because people just keep contributing money to it. And it's incredible because at the moment it's completely self-funded. So this fundraiser is going to mean that we can make this into a permanent um, community support resource and a permanent mutual aid resource for our community. Um, And we've also got our Instagram that's gained heaps of traction in the past, what, two weeks that we've had it up. We've had so many people contacting us offering produce donations from food that they've been growing, offering to drive, offering to cook, wanting to donate to the fundraiser, wanting to, yeah, just support in any way that we can. So it's really um, overwhelming and special to have that sort of community response. Yeah, incredible. Um, Yeah, and I'll definitely provide the links to the Food Angels in the podcast show notes when that comes out on Queering the on the 3CR page. Yeah, as well as... Yeah, the Instagram and yeah, all the stuff, the Chuffed fundraiser. Um, yeah. So in terms of what you've been doing, what have been some of the learnings from what you've done so far? Um, I think the biggest thing that's been difficult for, um, I know myself particularly, but I know a lot of other people that were involved is um, learning how to do things in a way that aren't going to burn you out because it is meant to be mutually beneficial aid. It's not charity where it's meant to be one person giving at all times. It's meant to be a reciprocal thing. So like realizing that some people that were volunteering, moving from um, being cooking and stuff like that to receiving meals themselves and just making sure that all of our volunteers are supported and cared for and fed by the food that we're making as well if they need it and just trying to really make it more than just delivering food because that's what we sort of realise it's become a sort of first point of contact for community members who do need more support than just food. Um, and I think for a lot of the volunteers as well, it's been really um, good to have everyone feel like they also are being cared for and that they're not expected to put themselves out and burn themselves out and exhaust themselves to keep this running because we don't want that to be how it is. No. Um, was Has there been any other significant challenges? A lot of it's related um, to that. Definitely the money issue because we are completely self-funded and we don't want to be a registered charity because we're not a charity. Um, we were um, originally receiving a bit of reimbursements from Bridget Black's fundraiser for community support that was set aside, um, but that money's run out. It ran out a while ago, so we were kind of just... Like, I was, I'm privileged enough to have been in the financial position to have worked and been able to sort of front the costs of a lot of this myself up until this point, but I know that that's not accessible for everyone. So, yeah, this fundraiser is really um, was the biggest thing that we needed to get going because, yeah, the money has been really difficult. 
Um, and it just, yeah, was making it harder for new volunteers to get involved because we didn't really have a way to reimburse them yet. Um, yeah. Yeah. Could you talk some more about the vision? You mentioned a bit about that, the collective on the Chuffed page. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess basically we want it to be a non-hierarchical permanent mutual aid resource um, that centres trans people, gender non-conforming people, cutie pop, um, and I guess kind of some bigger visions that we have for this project potentially once we're like up and running in a more sustainable way is providing mental health training for all of our volunteers because we do recognise that a lot of um, our recipients are vulnerable in that way um, and funding a space for us to cook and store the food and run the mutual aid from um, so that it's more centralised and that it's more accessible for more volunteers again and also as a community um, drop-in space as a resource in that way. Um, and we also would love to be able to have it be a source of paid employment for um, people that are currently volunteers as like a way of self-determined, dignified employment that helps the community. And we would want to ideally centre cutie poc and other trans and gender non-conforming people in that if we were ever able to do that and expanding our mutual aid beyond food yeah yeah cool um so if listeners are listening to this and thinking about getting involved how can they get involved yeah so we've got um an email so it's the food angels mutual aid at gmail.com all one word um we've also got our instagram um, which a lot of people have been messaging us on and we've got um, Alda, our awesome social media person who's been um, getting back to everyone really quickly. So if you want to contact us there, it's just the Food Angels Mutual Aid, all, again, one word. Um, yeah, and we've also got our Chuffed fundraiser, but that's linked on our social media too. Yeah, awesome. One last question. What would you say to listeners looking to start or grow in Oh, I'll start that again. What would you say to listeners looking to start or grow their own care or mutual aid practices? Um, as much as this is a cliche, it's kind of, I didn't really set out to start this in the way that it's kind of grown into. It's sort of like I recognised that I had the ability to do something because I was once removed from the people that we lost and I felt that I had the capacity to do something for my community and it's sort of grown naturally into a mutual aid project. So I feel like if you see a need and you think that you are someone that can fill it, just start doing it and people will jump on board and support you. And it's it's not easy. Um, it definitely hasn't been easy. I think I've reached burnout in January. But, yeah, I really strongly encourage you to just get a group of friends together, start doing something, and people will back up anything that is great, I guess, yeah. Awesome. Um, thanks so much for joining me on Queering the Air. Unless you have anything else you'd like to add or shout out, shout out to you. Um, well, Alex Cuff, who's running Hommel, the House of Mutual Learning, has been a huge help for getting this started. She's been a huge encouragement to me and a huge support. Um, and yeah, just also want to recognise that mutual aid is a concept that was taken from Indigenous and people of colour um, from their communities where they've been practising this for hundreds of thousands of years. It's not a new concept. It's been around for such a long time. I guess it's just sort of become more widely known in recent times. But yeah, just wanted to acknowledge that. Awesome. Thank you, Shelley. 
And that was an interview between Iris from Queering the Air and Tilly about um, the Queer Mutual Aid Fund, the Food Angels. We're going to go to a quick announcement now, and then when we come back, we will hear more on the debate about criminalising coercive control. You're on 3CR. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're here on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast with Genevieve and Lauren. The time is 7.33 and I'm told it is colder than I thought it was outside, approximately 12 or 13 degrees. Uh, we're now going to hear a short piece um, from ABC Radio National, actually. I know we usually don't play ABC Radio or, you know, um, highly publicised radio on here, but um, I think it's an important um, continuation of a conversation we've been having on Tuesday Breakfast about the um, the numerous processes going on around the country to try and criminalise coercive control. And so this is um, on that topic. Investigations are underway into the death of a Brisbane woman in a suspected murder-suicide involving her ex-partner earlier this week. 49-year-old Doreen Langham died in a suspicious house fire in her home hours after she called the police for help. Her estranged partner had breached a temporary violence order a number of times since it was imposed earlier this month. This latest family violence tragedy comes as Australia considers a different approach to domestic violence with a push to criminalise coercive and controlling behaviour. Cathy Van Exel has prepared this report and just a warning, this report contains some very distressing content. That's a triple O call domestic violence survivor Geraldine Bilston made in 2015 as her then recently estranged partner rammed her with a car. He'd been stalking her for days despite an AVO in place. For days he just breached that order. He had no regard for it. He was stalking me. It felt like he was hunting and that I was his prey. After a vicious physical assault, Geraldine Bilston had made the decision to leave with her two-year-old daughter. She'd endured years of coercive control. It can include physical abuse or the threat of physical abuse. During that time, I was experiencing a lot of different things. I had no access to money. I literally had no bank account in my own name. All of our assets were in his name. My ID had been destroyed. I was regularly verbally abused and humiliated and denigrated. And I didn't think of myself as a family violence victim. I didn't actively think about if I leave, I might be murdered, but I did towards the end. Legislation to make coercive control a crime is being considered in several jurisdictions. This week, the ACT made an in-principle commitment. 
It follows Queensland's move last week to establish a task force with the goal of a law within four years. New South Wales is midway through a parliamentary inquiry into coercive control. It seems like every state and territory in the country is at some point in considering this, which is pretty phenomenal given this was not even on the agenda at the beginning of last year. It's moved very quickly. Journalist Jess Hill, the author of See What You Made Me Do, says the horrific murder of Hannah Clark and her three children, who were set alight in their car in Brisbane a year ago, was a watershed moment. We were talking about power and control in, in domestic abuse and violence, but we weren't talking about this you know, typical plotline that we see play out time and again in these relationships where an offender or a perpetrator is using particular behaviours and techniques to oppress their partner and often their kids. Jess Hill gave evidence at the New South Wales hearing yesterday. Parts of domestic violence are a crime, a physical assault is a crime, um, a sexual assault is a crime, but most of what happens in the curse of control is utterly invisible to the eyes of the law. And what that means is that when a victim is in court, they are really only presenting particular incidents, but to the courtroom, you cannot see the whole system of abuse and therefore you cannot see the risk. You know, 99% of domestic homicides in New South Wales were characterised by coercive control. This is the strongest indicator for future homicide that we have. But there's caution, and in some cases opposition, from some DV advocates and women's groups, including those supporting Indigenous women and women from non-English-speaking backgrounds. Kate Fitzgibbon is director of the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre. She gave evidence to the New South Wales inquiry yesterday that Australia isn't ready for coercive control laws. The criminal justice system is a very blunt tool and creating criminal offences will only serve a very small percentage of victim survivors. What we're really calling on the New South Wales inquiry to do is to implement whole of system reform to ensure that we have specialist understanding and training on coercive control amongst all organisations and agencies that respond to family violence and that we know how to adequately identify, assess and manage risk of family violence so that we can ensure that we get support and security outcomes to those that need it. The criminal justice system will not do that. It will provide an avenue through which justice could be achieved. But we know that for many women, they do not receive justice through this system and that in some cases, it can be re-traumatising for them. So are you opposed to criminalising coercive behaviour? I do not think we need a standalone offence of coercive control. It will take a lot of resources. We already know that the criminal justice system is heavily backlogged. And I don't believe that without significant reform to evidentiary requirements that we would be sending women into a system that would improve their safety. Queensland's vow to bring in a law has been welcomed by Hannah Clark's parents, Lloyd and Sue, who've been campaigning since the tragedy. She'd still be alive today, she'd, and the kids. They want a law similar to Scotland's. In force for almost two years, it's considered the gold standard globally. Scottish Women's Aid played a central role along with police in crafting the law. Chief Executive Marsha Scott cautions it'll be years before it can be judged, but there's promising early data. So there have been over a thousand prosecutions. Crown Office figures show that they are proceeding to prosecution for 
over 90% of the cases that police are, are sending them. It reflects a couple of things. One is that the police are understanding the application of the new law, and they're creating a charge that includes the evidence that they have gathered and passing it on to our prosecutors service in a way that's appropriate and matches the new law. For those that end up in court, the conviction rate is around 85%. Marsha Scott understands Australian concerns about unintended consequences of a new law. She says Scottish Women's Aid is on alert. These miscarriages of justice happen every day in Australia, in every part of Australia, just like you do in Scotland. Putting in a new law isn't going to suddenly make something that isn't happening already. Kate Fitzgibbon says coercive control laws in Scotland, England and Wales are important examples, but it's early days. There's also some really important differences here. We know that in Scotland there is significant specialisation in domestic violence policing. There is not the same level of specialisation in policing of domestic violence in New South Wales. Jess Hill argues coercive control laws send an important societal signal. Geraldine Bilston agrees. Our system hierarchied the physical bruises that he'd left on me and then it completely ignored the way I had been psychologically affected, which really is what has left me with lifelong scars. And on one hand, I just feel so grateful and so lucky to be alive. And in another way... I know that I that I just can't be who I was before all this, that, that she's gone and sometimes I just still grieve for her. It's not right and it's not fair. Geraldine Bilston, a domestic violence survivor, ending that report from Cathy Van Exel. And if you'd like to hear more of Geraldine's story, we'll post that full interview with Cathy on the RM Breakfast website shortly. And if you or anyone you know needs help, That was a piece from um, Radio National on ABC about criminalising coercive control and the push for that. Um, I note that that debate has gone... Sorry, I note, I know, sorry, that that debate has gone for submissions um, in New South Wales and um, Queensland looks set to criminalise coercive control as well now um, and the debate is really heating up here in Victoria. So um, 3CR will stay on top of that coverage um, yeah, and Jen? Definitely. Um, all right, we're going to go to a um, interview that George, sorry, a conversation that George um, plugged us this week. Mm. Um, it's a Tamil, uh, sorry, an Elam Tamil academic and activist by the name of Ambikai Salvatnam Amma. Um who began a hunger strike a couple of days ago to demand justice for the Tamil genocide. Uh, This video, uh, which is, we're just going to play the audio of it, has been shared by the Tamil Refugee Council. And uh, yeah, we play the audio on air. Sorry, I'm just... (laughs) Easy. All right. Uh, Hope you enjoy this one. I am Mrs. Ambihe Selvakumar. On behalf of all Tamils of Sri Lanka who are the victims of continuing genocide since 19... All the 47 countries 
member countries in UN Human Rights Council to deliver found I have kept my demand. Refer Sri Lanka to ICC, Triple IM, referendum and have a special repertoire. Please minimum after we have been facing genocide since 1948 and the, it's been 12 years end of the war. Nothing has happened while the genocide continues. I'm pleading to the entire community, please save our people. Half of the towers of Sri Lanka and across the globe, I humbly request the UN Human Rights Council's 47 members of state to include the core including the core group of, on Sri Lanka to bring a strong resolution on 46th Human Rights Council session and save the Tamils. We had sent numerous emails, petitions, over 250, over, four, over 500 uh, organizations we wrote to UK Foreign Office and Lord Ahmed requesting this petition to be heard and all these minimum referring to ICC or to uh, set up a mechanism similar to Myanmar, IIIM but we have had no answer and we had given consistently three warnings that I would be starting a hunger strike if we had no response. In a de democratic country here, I have been in this country over since 1994. I have been a civil servant right from the beginning till 2nd of March 2020. I feel that my government has not heard me. When I say my government, I trusted the British government. British government historically has a duty because if they had left the country as Tamil's country, we would have had two nations. Because they joined into, for the administrative purposes, we are now facing the genocide. And now I plead to the British government you have a chance to rectify the mistake that you have made. Please, I have been a human rights activist since 80s, from childhood. I left Sri Lanka when I was a little girl. I'm pleading with you. Let me give my voice. There are 57 countries that are facing genocide, not just my Tamil people. I need my voice for those 57 countries. Please don't let me die. But unless if one of these four demands are met, I'm, I'm refusing to take any medication or any treatment or any food. I hope and I sincerely believe Tamils across the world and the, all the human rights organizations you and I have worked with you. I gave you all the witness statements, not from me. ICPPG as organization, we submitted a lot of, I have not been idle. Tamils have not been idle. Tamils have been very, very, very fair. We have been asking for international independent investigation. Please do it. Please grant us 12 years. 
is a long time. There are genocides still continues. How many in this world knows that every day mothers and sisters are looking for their enforced disappearing, disappeared loved ones. And while looking, 78 of mothers have died. This is the plight of Sri Lanka now. One is to one in some places and one is to five in some places. Between, between this range, there's army to civilian ratio. How can someone leave? Can you imagine? Can you, the international community, can you imagine this? Can you imagine somebody looking at you over your shoulders every single day for last 12 years? Whether it's a birth, a birthday, or death, there is army. How can Tamils live happily? We don't have our basic rights. We can't eat, we can't sleep, we can't, we can't even mourn the death of our loved ones. We have been denied those. Despite all these, Despite army forcing you to stop, Tamils across North and East and all the civil societies, they came and they protested, they demanded. It is the same demand the diaspora Tamils kept. As Tamils across the globe from Sri Lanka and diaspora community, we kept the four demands and these are the four demands I am demanding too. Futhavilti Polikhandi, it was the same demand. I, I also quote Eric Solheim, who was the face of the international community. He came on a human rights uh, day and told that international community only believes in Gandhian way. And he also said, Tamils have to come unitedly and ask for one, you know, they have to ask one demand, same demand. Here we go. We have protested peacefully from Patil to Bulihandi and enforced mothers. There is no prospect of accountability in Sri Lanka by the way of own demonstration domestic mechanism or hybrid mechanism. Upon fully endorsing the call for the decisive action at 46 second in UNHRC, released by all majority political parties and civil society organizations representing the east, north and east of the island of Sri Lanka dated 15th January 2021. And upon fully supporting all the demands outlined in the possibility Polyhandi P2P protests include conducted by the North and East Civil Society dated 7 February 2021. I call I call upon our UK government to amend the draft resolution, the zero draft resolution to be presented at the 46th UN High Commission, uh, UN Human Rights Council. My first demand, recommend to the UN Security Council and the UN General Assembly to take up the matter of accountability and consider referring Sri Lanka to International Criminal Court.
and any other appropriate and effective international accountability mechanism to inquire into crime of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. Second demand, these demands are not in any particular order. Establish an international independent investigative me mechanism like the one established for Myanmar, WWM, or to, to the one established for Syria, namely the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism, IIIM, mandated to collect evidence of the most serious international crimes and violations of international law and prepare a file of criminal prosecution. What we had in OSL is not criminal prosecution. What we want is a criminal prosecution. A meaningful international independent investigative mechanism should gather evidence from the Tamils affected by the genocide while, while also making use of the information and evidence contained in OISL report of September 2015 and must have a strict time frame. Mandate the Office of High Commissioner of Human Rights to appoint a special repertoire, continue to monitor Sri Lanka for the ongoing violations and have an OHCHR field presence in the country. Fourth one, recommend a UN monitored referendum to determine the aspiration of Tamil people in Sri Lanka on the basis that the north and the east of Sri Lanka is the traditional home, Tamil homeland and Tamils have the right to self-determination. I declare that the hunger strike for the truth and justice will not be brought to an end at any circumstances unless and until at least one of the demand is fulfilled by the UK government or the 47 members of state. I hope, as I said before, I am a human rights activist. I need my voice to voice against those 57 countries. We said never say never again when we had Rwanda. In this same Parliament Square, I mentioned in 2009 that after 10 years, we are going to be discussing the Tamil genocide. Please evoke your R2P and that fell in deaf ears. I plead with the international community, all the 47 members of state, especially the UK government, who is my government, I trust you. I trust the entire media. You, your silence need to be broken. The media and the youth, all the students have the power to stop the genocide. I appeal to the entire Tamil community entire human rights people, entire human rights activists, particularly to the UN 47 member state, UK High Commissioner, General Secretary, Prime Minister, please 
let Thomas live. Say my voice by fulfilling these four demands. These four demands are just minimum what you can do to the Tamils. You can do to stop the ongoing genocide. 12 years is a long time. Since 1948, we have been facing genocide. The war ended in 2009. Why are we still continuing genocide with impunity? Please, let us live. Thank you. Incredible speech by Ambikai Salvatnam Amma, who's an Elam Tamil academic and activist. Uh, she began her hunger strike uh, last week in the UK at 12 noon, demanding justice for Tamil genocide. We're just going to go to a quick announcement uh, and then I'm just going to play a track. Hi, my name's Pilar Aguilera and I'm 3CR's chairperson. I'm urging you to become a 3CR subscriber. We need to keep independent, radical, dissenting voices on air. Social change doesn't just happen. We need to nurture it. We desperately need to hear alternative ideas that allow us to organise, build community and change the systems that continue to oppress us and destroy the planet. Put your money where your mouth is. Become a member. Subscribe today. Featuring world-changing documentaries aimed at inspiring a better world, this year's Transitions Film Festival covers themes of art, activism, climate change, social innovation, epic architecture, and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, available virtually from February the 26th to March the 15th, online and nationwide. The Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Um, sorry, I'm not going to go to a track. I'm actually going to jump straight into my conversation uh, with Bobby Trower, who is a Sydney-based writer and advocacy manager um, who has experienced as a policy manager as well as working in the non-for-profit organisation management industry. Bobby works as a senior manager advocacy at YWCA Australia. Bobby is on the show to talk about the YWCA and also to talk about sexual violence which seems to be an experience shared by more women and gender non-conforming people than the stats recognise. Obviously, in the light of the Brittany Higgins sexual assault case, Chanel Contos's petition, and now the historical rape cases that are coming out in the media now, uh, where the per perpetrator is speculated to be an existing cabinet member, we obviously have a lot to talk about. And I also, just before jumping into conversation, want to... Um, just give a trigger warning, we, we will be talking about sexual violence, sexual assault and rape. Um, hi, Bobby. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Good morning, Jen. All right. Let's start off just with a bit of background on you. Um, what do you do for the YWCA and what is the YWCA? <laughs> it's a great question to start off with. Um, I'm the Senior Manager of Advocacy here at YWCA Australia and uh, we're a national feminist organisation where we're working towards the future where all women, young women and girls are equal, safe and respected. Um, we provide programs and services to improve the lives of women, young women and girls all across Australia. Um, that includes things like education, training, employment support, um, 
We also have crisis support, disability support services, and we do primary prevention of gender-based violence, as well as supporting women in vulnerable situations with housing and homelessness support services. We're really committed to uh, our work towards gender equality, and we've got the expertise and the experience, and we also have a really large membership base, and we also have a really amazing group called the Cyber Feminists, the CBS, um, which are an advocacy group that mobilise on gender equality issues. Amazing. Um, all right, so jumping into um, an article uh, that you wrote uh, that was titled We're Told One in Five Australian Women Has Experienced Sexual Assault uh, This Past Week Suggests It's More. Uh, we, I guess you expose the fact that statistics we have about sexual violence are most likely to be severely underestimated. Uh, do you want to explain um, what you mean by this and why the stats are inaccurate, do you think? Yeah, this one's um, a pretty complex one, but we'll try and, we'll try and unpack it. Um, so the t- statistics tell us that uh, one in five Australian women, which is about 18.4% of the population, have experienced sexual violence since the age of 15. Um, we know that this is chronically underreported, not just from anecdotes from our members and the community, but from our own experiences of those that work in the uh, organisation and people we work alongside and love. We know that those statistics drastically underreport what's actually happening. Now, there are several reasons for this, um, but one of the things that we do know is that during the pandemic, there's been a clear disproportionate number of First Nations women, young women aged 18 to 24, uh, women with restrictive health conditions, pregnant women and women in financial stress that are more likely than the general population to experience physical and sexual violence. Um, Another part of it is um, not everybody understands what sexual assault actually is. Um, So just for definition's sake, it's unwanted sexual behaviour that makes a person feel uncomfortable, threatened or scared. And that covers quite a lot of things through from rape to indecent assault. Um, And there are a lot of myths around um, sexual assault. So some people think only women can be sexually assaulted, but anybody can be sexually assaulted. Um, People, um, another myth is that women falsely accuse men of sexual assault to get attention, which we know is just not true. Um, There's a huge fear of not being believed, and that underpins a lot of people not reporting. As well as the the process, the process is quite an onerous one, um, especially being involved with police. And for many communities, that's not a a safe way to be able to disclose sexual violence. Um, It's also, people think that sexual assault can't happen if you're married, but we know that it doesn't matter what relationship you're in, you can also experience assault. And then there's the, the cultural things, you know, um, the, the kind of insidious stuff, which is the minimising of people who've experienced sexual assault. So, oh, she was drunk or she was wearing revealing clothing and putting the responsibility, victim blaming, is a really strong thing and it, it, it basically puts people off from, from reporting. So I've made it really simplified there, but there are lots of factors that mean that, that, that this is underreported. What we actually know is that um, just from the article going out there (laughs) and the comments that we've received, um, there are very few people that haven't said, like, this is something that I don't know. And for me personally, there are so few people that I know that haven't experienced sexual assault in some form or another. Um, And so this is, you know, off the back of the Me Too movement where we had lots of disclosures um, that we know that statistics or no statistics, there are many people, there may be even people listening now that have their own story of sexual assault. And so there's a need for support, there's a need for solidarity, um, and there's a need to change things for the future. I think we can all agree for that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that um, the Chanel Contos 
uh, petition um, in high school students really highlights how uh, common it is uh, for um, especially young people to experience sexual violence. Um, I just wanted to expand. You have given us an incredible, extensive um, definition on sexual violence um, and I guess why the stats are inaccurate. But just to expand expand on this notion of silence in sexual violence survivors, could you exp- uh, explain a little bit deeper in terms of why there's still so much silence surrounding these issues, especially, I guess, in Australian society um, and, I guess, what this tells us about society? Yeah, so there's two parts to this. So this is, um, there, there is a startling reality of how many young women in particular who've experienced sexual assault and this forcing into silence is, is based on many factors. It can be the fear of repercussion, it can be censure, it can be shame, embarrassment, or as we mentioned before, the, the really disturbing one is being blamed for their own rights. So what, what a lot of what we're doing is unpacking why that's the case. So the data tells us that women are more likely to experience sexual harassment and sexual violence than men. We also know that those who have experienced violence in the last 12 months are most likely to be aged 18 to 24. But really, the data that tells us that one in four young men um, think that women find it flattering to be persistently pursued, even if they're not interested. This is from uh, research from the National Research Body and Rose in partnership with Big Health and their report, Young Australians' Attitudes to Violence Against Women and Gender Equality. And another one is that one in seven young people believe a man would be justified to force sex if a woman initiated it, but then changed her mind and pushed him away. So there's some really, really heavy sort of societal factors that underpin why that might not happen. We also always focus on the victim. So we say things like, you know, what was her culpability in the lead-up to the assault? So we hear their victim, the victim's testimony is dissected. Why didn't she report it earlier? Where did it happen? What was it? Where, what was she wearing? Had she been drinking? And these details can be picked apart in, in a sexual assault victim's testimony. And very rarely, as the public and other people doing the questioning, do we ask why the perpetrator did what they did. So the focus is, is not really on the perpetrator. Um, and I just wanted to share this quote from one of our CBF members, which I just, I think, speaks to this really well. We need to focus on the perpetrator. We need to ask why a man, can, he can think he can lead a vulnerable woman to a secluded spot, use her body for her own gratification, and then come back to work the next day with no long-term repercussions. This is the reality. Again, time and time again, um, people experience sexual violence and are unable to do anything about it. They're forced into silence. And I think in particular, the, the two sort of incidents that have collided, which is Chanel Contest's petition and the experiences of Brittany Higgins and three others at this time, as well as others that you mentioned before, um, there really is just this huge wave of attention on, on the issue of sexual assault. So um, there is a lot of pressure, but it was also encouraging people to come forward and hopefully normalising the conversation around being able to talk about yeah, definitely. And that's actually a, a really good segue into my next question. Um, obviously, in light of the Brittany Higgins sexual assault case and uh, Chanel Contos's petition, um, it obviously shows these issues are prevalent, whilst also the cover-up stories and denial is also as prevalent as ever. Uh, would you be able to unpack some of the recent news stories and I guess what this says about the culture of sexual violence in Australia, especially coming, I mean, the Brittany Higgins is obviously um, sexual uh, assaults in parliament and uh, Chanel Contos's is prominently sexual assault in private schools. So I guess an elite level, um, what this says about the culture of sexual violence in Australia. 
Yeah, again, this is quite a complex one because we're seeing it through the lens of these two separate incidences that have been brought together by the public conversation. So there's two separate issues here, I guess. One is the support um, for survivors of violence like Brittany Higgins who are coming forward with their story and also the really clear indication that Parliament is not an equal and safe workplace. I think that's probably the biggest indication here. For Chanel, it's a bit different because the experiences of sexual assault by students um, uh, from the most prestigious Sydney schools are really highlighting that, that young people aren't getting the information and support they need when they need it the most. So um, I've worked with many schools. There are many schools doing a really good job on this. Um, boys' schools, girls' schools, co-ed schools, doing a really good job, but there's not a consistent enough approach. Uh, a particular part of um, Chanel's petition um, is around the curriculum, and the curriculum was reviewed in 2018. Um, I was actually on that curriculum review in 2018, uh, ironically, and we were trying to get domestic and family violence uh, recognised within the curriculum. It's really difficult to put the onus back on teachers, even though we know that that's an important part in the learning space for young people, which is why comprehensive sexuality education is so important. But I think one of the things that you're touching on is why is this, why are these two incidences raising uh, sort of this massive communication around these subjects? And I think that it's because it's part of our shared experiences. Um, I'm non-binary, um, but I, um, I work with a lot of women and I work with uh, uh, lots of people in the sector who have, we, we have shared experiences where um, it, it's horrific. Sexual assault is horrific, but it is also normalised. And it's a way where we're sort of starting to think, well, why in society are women regarded with such little worth? Um, why is there selective empathy only reserved for people who are fathers with daughters? Mm. Um, and I think in the Brittany Higgins case, one of the really alarming things is this perpetrator, um, alleged perpetrator, has had people cover him up for years in order to progress in his career, while Brittany's career you know, ended um, when she was um, sort of forced in silence. So there's there's no real nice way to put this. There there is a, a significant issues across Australia that are related to gender equality, that relates to domestic and family violence and sexual assault. Um, a sex worker last year, 24 year old Michaela Dunn, was killed um, in a, in a, in, a, in a violent stabbing attack, um, and we um, that didn't really create the type of public discourse that we're seeing now. Earlier this year, a 46 year old. Um, anti-domestic violence campaigner in, in Alice Springs, a First Nations woman, was, was um, uh, killed in an alleged domestic violence incident. So there are things happening all the time. We know that we lose, on average, one woman a week in violence from men. So we know that this issue is pervasive and it's so spread across in every area of our lives, whether we're at home, whether we're at work. Um, there, there is, this is a really complex issue, but that does not mean that it's in the too hard basket and it doesn't mean that we don't have the leadership in this country to really drive change. Yeah, definitely. And I think you um, touched on a really important point uh, that, you know, there is media, uh, there is sexual assault, sexual violence uh, cases, so many every year, and I guess very high profile sexual assault cases um, are the ones that get the conversation going. I mean, you saw this with a little bit with Me Too. Um, socioeconomic race uh, definitely come into play with who gets heard and why, um, which, I mean, is disappointing, but at least it gets the conversation going. Um, I also just I want to dive a little bit deeper into um, why you think there is so much denial and I guess normalization still surrounding sexual violence, especially um, from men and especially, I mean, 
for men in power? Mm. Well, you said the key word there. <laughs> it's power. <laughs> power is a uh, a moving um, thing that is held over people. And in in the terms of the, these particular cases, you can see the power imbalance, um, and we can see the the sort of ripple effect and the domino effect it has. So we can link the fact that it's really difficult to be a young woman in politics to the fact that we don't have many female leaders in the current uh, in the current government. Um, we can see it play out within the fact that we don't have as many women CEOs. Um, there's all sorts of sort of things that are connected to the, the holding of power here. And what we're what we're looking at really is we're looking at um, multiple ways to address these power imbalances. Um, I think a lot of people tend to go, well, it's only it's only something that you see in in where there is a lot of power and display, but personal power. Per- power within the home. And when we look at power imbalances, what we see is that um, largely in these situations, there's a huge power imbalance. And so that is a, a tool a tool for perpetrators to continue their lives as normal, to not face the accountability for their actions, and also to normalize it. Um, I think with some of the, um, the data that I shared earlier, we're looking at um, the fact that there's a there's a general uh, distrust of what that looks like, what women look like in that regard. So um, when we're we're just excusing and justifying and sometimes promoting violence against women, um, and it's not just individual behaviours. This is sanctioned in in all sorts of ways. Last year we saw um, uh, um, we uh, we saw quite a number of schools rippled by um, you know muck up days that were taken too far um and you know a lot of the time we'll, we'll sort of go all well, that boys being boys rather than addressing it as a, as a society and looking at the broader change that's needed um and it's going to take all of us um it takes all of us within the workplace it takes us at home it takes a general move towards gender equality that's going to change things but um i think that the the, the part of power um is is a really important factor to consider um, where we, we, it's not easy to address power imbalance across every hour, every uh, angle of society. Um, so we have to take real action and have to have leadership. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of that action, um, it'd be awesome if you could talk about some of the, I guess, possible solutions in an ideal world moving forward um, and I guess what we should do as a society so there are there are sort of two trains to this thought. There's the stuff we can do as individuals in our own lives and impacting on the people that are around us. And then there's the real systemic issues that we need to sort of push for as a society. The four main things that I think any listeners today would find really useful um, would be to be a positive bystander. Um, Keep aware, watch things going on around you and, and be able to take the take the step to um, be able to be a positive bystander and be able to intervene in situations that you come across. So that's number one. Um, the second would be to challenge gender stereotypes and celebrate diversity. Those stereotypes that I talked about, the boys will be built, boys or stop acting like a girl, um, mean that we have unreal expectations for what it is to be a man. Um, and it's harmful for men and boys as well. And also stereotypes around women being weak or image conscious or passive homemakers are in our cultural psyche. So they're linked to jokes, they're linked to disempowerment, they're, they're linked to, you know, like radio stars being able to talk about our current female prime minister at the time and be really quite violent in that language. So what we're trying to do is really, you know, push back against that. 
Reflecting on your own attitudes and behaviours is also really important. So none of us are free of unconscious biases. And so we, we have to acknowledge that we have privilege and power in different ways when others do not. And we can be considerate about that and really challenge ourselves. And then becoming a vocal advocate for gender equality, which you can always join the Y. Membership's free. That's my plug. Um, but my other thing would be there's, there's, there's sort of some fundamental things that we need to see now. Um, that would be uh, specialist support for victims and perpetrators to get the support that they need. Um, that's an area that we definitely need to invest further into. We also need comprehensive sexuality education for everyone. So everyone's getting the same information um, in delivered in ways that's um, relevant and appropriate to them. Um, and what we're trying to do at the moment is support the call for Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, uh, to conduct a national review of Parliament and to actually look into it as a safe and equal workplace. And the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra leading that work. And what that leads us to do is to sort of have um, some goals to work towards, which are sort of short-term goals. These are the things that we need now. But what we need into the future is this not-so-radical notion of um, making sure that the the budget that the government uses is is, is used in a gender responsive way, and by that I mean looking at the policy analysis that lead us to our longer term goals. So being able to highlight the need for investment into primary prevention of violence, for example, which is this changing of social conditions, um, investing in respectful relationships and, and comprehensive sexuality education, including consent in schools, that requires an investment. Um, and I think one of the hardest parts is you can't send entire workforces back to school and say, OK, well, respectful relationship education for everyone. But what we can do is that we can have bystander intervention training and education for everyone, including um, people at Parliament House. Um, and I think the, the end goal for us is that we want everyone to be safe at work. We don't want there to be people who are going to work and experiencing sexual assault. And we definitely don't want people to be experiencing that at home either. So if we pull together, if we think about the things that we need to invest in as a country, and we really um, look at how we can um, implement primary prevention education across Australia, and we hold perpetrators to account, um, we'll definitely be on our way to creating some significant changes in, in all of our lives. Definitely. And just a last question, just to round us off. Did you have any resources, websites, phone numbers, anything that you wanted to plug uh, before we finish up? Uh, yeah, that would be great. There are two sort of things that I'd want to share with the listeners. Um, one is that if anybody has experienced violence or abuse, um, you can get 24-7 uh, support from 1-800-RESPECT, which is one 800 737 732. And if you're, um, if you're a guy listening to this and uh, you're using violence or you're worried about um, some of the, your behaviours or actions, you can also get support, and that's a really important factor to understand, um, from Men's Line, um, which is 1300 789978. Um, and I definitely re recommend checking out uh, YWC Australia if you want to join our cyber feminist group. Um, we advocate as an online flash mob on issues of gender equality, and um, the more voices that we have, the more people can hear um, what we have to say. So that would be brilliant. Awesome. And we can pop that um, on our website as well. Well, it's been such a pleasure, Bobby. Thank you so much for having, uh, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. That was uh, Bobby Trower, who is a the Senior Manager Advocacy at YWCA Australia, talking to us about sexual violence, um, 
obviously in the light of uh, the Brittany Higgins sexual assault case um, and uh, the Chanel Contos petition and now the um, historical rape cases that are coming up in the media. If this is, uh, again, to repeat what Bobby said, if this has brought up any issues for you or if you feel like you need to speak to someone, please call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732, which is the National Sexual Assault Domestic and Family Violence Counselling Service. It doesn't matter where you live. uh, They will take your call if need be and refer you to a service close to home. Otherwise, you can call Lifeline, which is 1-3-1-1-1-4. All right, uh, we're just going to go to a track. Um, this is a new track, actually. It's um, by, sorry, I'm just getting it up now. It's called uh, The Truth. Um, it's by a man-made mountain, and it features uh, Melbourne's own Sumper the Great. Now what you gon' do? 
song by Man Made Mountain featuring Sampa the Great uh, titled The Truth. It's off their new album. I highly recommend having a listen to it called Average Man. Um, We're going to go to another song now by a Sydney-based artist called Rissa. Uh, Rissa is an R&B artist um, from Australia. I've just started listening to her and I think she's absolutely amazing. Um, This is a song called Do You Feel It? Let me take you back to where it all came out to be When naked wasn't naked and Adam loved Eve See, the garden got a little twisted like the snake in the tree And a plant to trick his sister fast Forward to the here and now Snakes hustle, bustle, got the moves all showing out Sight, only blinded by the fools And now so honey, better keep an eye open for they look out You got me right me I can't escape the feeling it keeps me tell me do you feel it tell me do you feel it can you take the pressure baby you got to know how to carry the weight on which the world is buried and tell me do you see it tell me do you see it pick up the hope that Keep 
A song called Do You Feel It by Sydney based artist uh, Rissa. Um, we're coming to the end of our show, so we're just gonna back announce um, what we've had on the show. It's been uh, quite a packed show today. Uh, up um, earlier, we had Iris from 3CR's Queering the Air program speak with Tilly about the queer mutual aid group, uh, The Food Angels. Uh, Then we played um, some audio from ABC Radio National's piece on the debate to criminalise coercive control. Um, Then uh, a speech done by Ambikai Salvatnam Ama, uh, who's a Tamil academic and activist going on a hunger strike to demand justice for Tamil genocide. And then I had the pleasure of speaking to Bobby Trower, a Sydney-based writer and advocacy manager about sexual violence. We also just wanted to thank... Um, our new 3CR supporter for Tuesday Breakfast, uh, Living Coco, based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao, tea and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao for over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa, putting community first by respecting food sovereignty. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook or Instagram. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the new international bookshop. Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. The 3CR podcast, produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.